2: Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, with me, that's Krista Stephen Steven Pinker is back in London next week, when he'll be in conversation with none other than Richard Dawkins. There are a handful of tickets left to this, and there's a live stream too if you can't make it, but I hope to see you there. To give you a little taste of what to expect, I want to share another of the amazing conversations we've hosted with Stephen over the years this time with the actor and broadcaster Stephen Fry, discussing Stephen's book Enlightenment Now. Hope you enjoy it.
0: Thank you so much, everybody. It's a thrill to be here. Um, I love sitting next to heroes, and, and Stephen is a hero of mine. As, uh, as John has said, and as I'm sure most of you know, he is uh, one of the leading public intellectuals, there are very other there are other phrases one can use, but I hope you accept that one, Uh, in in the English-speaking world. um, So I wanted to say, Stephen, everything you do, I admire, except your spelling of the name Stephen, but um, (laughs) we'll (laughs) overlook that. (laughs) And if I can ask you, if it has been a conscious, or you felt impelled to move from the more academic sphere of linguistics, psycholinguistics and neuroscience into the cultural sphere? I made the crossover when uh, people would ask what
1: I did for a living and I would uh, say, well, I study language, how it develops in children, how it works, people say, wow, that's really interesting. And I thought there is a uh, a market for bringing ideas about language and uh, mind to a broader understanding. And there had been a breakthroughs in public communication of science in areas like uh, evolution, in uh, cosmology. In uh, dinosaurs, Uh, but no one that I knew of had tried to bring the the discoveries of cognitive science to a a broader um, public. And I thought, well, it would be fun fun to try. Uh, So I wrote The Language Instinct, which tried to explain everything you always wanted to know about language in in what I hoped would be an an accessible format, and I guess it was an accessible format, because uh, people responded to it, and one thing led
0: to another. Right. And then this move from that to To the more, if I can say so, political side of it. I mean, you might have been looked at as a typical Harvard intellectual academic with sort of left-leaning principles, a a liberal in the loose sense of the word. But of course, in the last few years, it's as if everything has changed in terms of our sense of what a left or right means. And you have infuriated both left and right, <laughs> to some extent, with, with both the blank slate and then the better angels of our nation. Um, I wonder if you could tell me about your journey in, in that regard. If you think you've stayed the same, but the world has changed, or you have altered your view of politics and... and...
1: Well, from the uh, position uh, inspired in part by Noam Chomsky, that language is a, uh, a human faculty, it's a, one of our innate uh, capabilities, I uh, extended it to the question of what are our other innate faculties uh, and in uh, How the Mind Works I suggested that uh, together with, with language we have a suite of emotions, fear, jealousy, love, anger, gratitude. Uh, we have a set of ways of construing the world, a kind of uh, intuitive physics and intuitive biology and intuitive psychology. We have uh, aesthetic reactions to the world. Um, a a sense of which landscapes are beautiful versus threatening, which faces are attractive or not. And that this suite of psychological reactions could be explained in large part by uh, evolution, the the forces that give rise to uh, innate uh, mechanisms. But positing a complex human nature uh, at least for a lot of the 20th century uh, w- and beforehand, uh, had a kind of a more of a right wing aroma than a left wing aroma. Despite Chomsky himself, who was of course a, uh, a rather flagrant uh, leftist, as, as uh, Mitt Romney might might uh, say, uh, severe leftist. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> he called himself se- a severe conservative. <laughs> so Chomsky did violate that equation, but there there had been a, a, a kind of um, uh, in, in traditional liberalism, a kind of utopian vision that was based on, on the assumption that uh, human nature was infinitely malleable, so yes. that we could—we were not saddled with the with fatal flaws. Uh, we did not have to accommodate human uh, jealousy or dominance, uh, desire for revenge, differences between the sexes, but with the proper socialization and child-rearing, we could engineer society
0: to, in turn, engineer humans. Yes, I mean, in a way, it comes down to the the very simple nature-nurture debate, that, that you were pushing it more towards nature. You know, there was evolution. We were programmed, encoded with certain faculties and uh, ways of perceiving the world and responding to it as opposed to those being acculturated and the gift of a society in which we were born. Is that
1: too simple? uh, In a sense, yes, although what... Uh, what evolution programmed into us was a set of mechanisms, all of which could learn, because it would be a stupid organism indeed that did not <laughs> respond to information about the environment, right. including other people. Yeah. But, uh, and what I explored further in the blank slate was the, the political and moral and emotional colorings of the nature-nurture debate. Why the nature-nurture debate is not just a scientific debate, but uh, also a, a political one. And it's because traditionally there there was at least a, a strand of uh, left liberalism that seemed to be committed to humans as blank slates, as infinitely malleable, whereas uh, there is a, a strain of conservatism that began with the assumption that humans are are uh, tragically limited, that we are uh, innately competitive and jealous and, and also limited in our cognitive faculties, with implications such that we can't, we're not smart enough to design society from the top down, so we have to rely on uh, distributed bottom-up systems like markets, that because humans are perennially tempted by uh, conquest and exploitation, then we need deterrence like the rule of law and armed forces to uh, deter invasions. So you had a kind of tragic vision which was leaned a bit right, and you had a more utopian vision, depending on a blank slate, which leaned a bit left. I uh, kind of explored those historical roots, and, and then, then tried to scramble them by pointing out that, that it's really not a, a dichotomy, that if human nature is complex, if it has multiple parts, then there isn't a... Uh, you don't have to come down on the side that either humans are inherently selfish, tragically flawed, uh, ultimately limited, or infinitely malleable plastic blank slates, that rather we have a a set of motives, some of which have uh, regrettable uh, features, like our our desire for revenge. Um, On the other hand, we also have, there are, are parts of human nature that can channel and control and inhibit our darker impulses. We have a capacity for self-control in the, the, our massive frontal lobes. You know, we can count to ten and save for a rainy day and hold our ho- horses and so on. Yes. Uh, we have cognitive faculties such as the, ones, the very ones that I explored in the, in the books on language and the mind. We can have uh, create new ideas by combining Old ideas in, in, in a combinatorial explosion of possibilities. We can have ideas about our ideas and ideas about our ideas about our ideas. Is that what ideas. you mean
0: by combinatorial and recursive thinking? Indeed. So yeah, it's a would big th- thing of yours, isn't it? Indeed. Yeah. So a
1: recursive representation is one that can contain an example of itself. So every time you say, um, well, I think that uh, he, he thinks that I'm coming, but I'm not, that is you embed one thought within another thought, you're having a recursive yes.
0: thought. And, and that, can, that covers theory of mind and very other things. Yeah. So
1: theory of mind is, uh, essentially uh, depends on, on uh, a kind of a recursive yeah. uh,
0: mentalizing. Being able to picture what other people might think. Indeed. So, and so then we, in we, in Thanks is, to
1: language, we also have the ability to learn from each other. And so uh, as society... Uh, tries out uh, innovative arrangements, and some of them work better than others, we can sh- share our ideas about which ones that work and which ones that don't. So there is scope for uh, for progress, for social improvement, uh, given the, the toolbox that evolution gave us, the, the cognitive toolbox.
0: Right, so again, using your language idea, it may be true that language, the language instinct, competence, is encoded into us, But that doesn't mean we're all going to speak the same language.
1: Well, yes, indeed. That that Whatever nature gave us is a uh, a set of systems that are designed to be nurtured in a sense that uh, even a capacity for language is not a capacity for, for English or for Japanese. It's a capacity to uh, take in information from our fellow humans and uh, allow us to speak and understand an infinite number of sentences exactly. going forward. And
0: I will, I will share with you my terrible joke, which is that uh, it's actually a mistake to think it's just nature and nurture. Um, it, it's about human will and the passion to succeed, in it, however brutally. So it's really nature, nurture, and Nietzsche. Um, and uh, <laughs> we'll come to Friedrich Nietzsche very soon because he's very much a bugaboo of yours. <laughs> yes, um, but. If, if we now look at this extraordinary book, Enlightenment Now, most people have an idea of what maybe the Enlightenment is. Um, we can think of printing, giving rise to the Renaissance, giving rise to science and the age of reason, which then gives rise to what is known as the Enlightenment. And I'd, I'd love you just to sketch briefly, um, you can use your wonderful quotations from Kant, if you like, who himself defined Enlightenment, Aufklärung. Um, I wondered if you could just explain what you see the Enlightenment as meaning.
1: Uh, I, I identify three themes as animating the Enlightenment, and they, they form the most of the subtitle of the book: mm-hmm. uh, reason, science, and uh, humanism. humanism uh, and uh, progress. And, well, which collectively oh, lead to, lead to right. progress, indeed. Yeah. So, uh, reason is uh, comes from the uh, uh, the realization that traditional sources of belief are, are actually generators of error. Things like authority, tradition, dogma, charisma. Hermeneutic parsing of sacred texts, yeah. uh, uh, the subjective glow of certainty, uh, and that there's no substitute for, uh, for, for, for reason. And in fact, reason is, in a very real sense, not, not negotiable. Because and,
0: yes, but also, even unreasonable ideologies use reason. To justify themselves. Indeed. That's uh, an important uh, point, isn't
1: it? Indeed. That as soon as um, you even began to propose some alternative to reason and tried to persuade people why it was better than reason, you kind of lost the argument. Because you're, <laughs> as long as you're not uh, threatening people, as long as you're not am- amassing an armed posse to f- convert people bribing to your cause, them. as long as you're not bribing them, yes. as long as you're giving them reasons, as long as you would insist if challenged that you're not full of crap, that people should take you seriously, then you've, you've surrendered the point. You have... It, it would be uh, like saying of...
0: there's no such thing as time and I will tell you about it tomorrow. <laughs> it, it just doesn't make sense. It, yeah, it, if you it, say it, this it, is why there is no reason, the word why is a, a reason word.
1: It, it, precisely. Yeah. That's so exactly that, right.
0: And reason, as you say, is the absolute basis, the non-negotiable basis of... The Enlightenment.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Then uh, science uh, comes from the conviction that the uh, universe is intelligible; that we can we can try to explain things. We can, mm. And moreover, we can, uh, since we can't a priori be certain uh, of any of our explanations, uh, we have an imperative to to test them, to calibrate them against reality, and to uh, reject the ones that the world tells us are. And opposed. that's what we
0: call sometimes empiricism. For example, the Indeed. testing of the. Validity and repetitive uh, truth of, of an observation, for example. Indeed. Yeah. Uh,
1: and science, o- it's often said that science can't uh, give us our values, that there is, uh, it can tell us about how the world does work but not how uh, it ought to work or how we ought to behave. And that is true as a matter of, kind of a logical uh, categorization, that is a statement of fact and a statement of value are not the same thing. On the other hand, there are many insights of science that, that I argue for, must form part of the worldview, including the moral worldview, of any educated person, such as um, naturalism, that the laws of the universe have no goal or purpose related no. to human uh, well-being. Uh, they, the laws of physics they just don't care about you they, they, they don't if, if you get sick they, there's no no uh, entity or, uh, or, or or agent that wanted you to get sick yes. if you fall off a cliff it wasn't there's no fate it wasn't preordained it's not fulfilling some mission or purpose uh, stuff happens and, th- and th- I think
0: If Victorians were as shocked as we think of them as being by Darwin, and actually there's some historical evidence that they weren't quite as shocked as we think they were, it wasn't by the fact that we may have descended from apes or be apes it was that it presented a, a natural world which was so callous and unfeeling and that we were the result of a simple, what we would now call algorithmic series of rules, not a design, and there was no purpose to our life except the shallow purpose of reproduction as well. Oh,
1: indeed, there's no, and no, no purpose judged by the laws of nature. Of course, once human brains come into existence, humans have purposes, but it's a mistake to project our purposes onto the laws of the cosmos. Uh, so, that, that's an example of a scientific insight that, uh, that has tremendous relevance for, for moral reasoning, including the fact that if we uh, care about our well being, we can't look to the cosmos to take care of us, yeah. that it's really, uh, it's really up to us. Uh,
0: we can uh, test empirically if prayers are answered, after all.
1: And, and, the, 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 and the results are in. Yeah, <laughs>
0: yes. <laughs> uh, Thoughts more, and prayers, uh, nil.
1: <laughs> no, that's right.
0: Uh,
1: uh, and even uh, another scientific insight with enormous implications for, for the human condition is this, the, the second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy. Yes. That now, you,
0: you spend a lot of time in this book talking about entropy, and I'd, I'd love you just to explain why this is more than just a, something that's important to physicists.
1: Yes. The, um, I mean, in the, the uh, technical sense, the, the second law of thermodynamics is that, um, that entropy uh, in a closed system uh, increases. That is disorder. Uh, the heat uh, like goes from a hot... Body a cold. It, that uh, differences in temperature, which are uh, necessary for to have usable energy, will inevitably dissipate uh, over time, unless the system is exposed to energy or information from the outside world. But that closed closed systems disorder increases, and in uh, one, one implication is that. Things going wrong don't need a special explanation in terms of uh, any designer or or, uh, entity wanting things to go wrong. It's just the natural course of events for things not to go our way, simply because there are vastly more ways in which things can go wrong than for things to go right. And so we have to deploy energy and information in order to Carve out a zone of beneficial
0: order in our our local environment with the use of of energy. And this was a recent discovery because it's, you know, we forgive our ancestors for noting, above all, examples of explosions of energy, volcanoes, hurricanes, earthquakes, mudslides. They would think it was a world in which energy could just appear from nowhere.
1: Yeah, that's true. Misled by concentrated local sources of energy yes. such as the, uh, the Earth's core and, and yeah. the sun. And one implication of that is that we, we ask the wrong question when we ask uh, why is there uh, poverty? Poverty is just the, the natural condition of the universe. The question that we should ask is why is there wealth? And indeed, that was a major uh, obsession of a number of Enlightenment thinkers, uh, Adam Adam Smith and his his, uh, um, Scottish and and Dutch uh, precursors. Uh, But it does change the way you look at things if you you realize that really what we ought to explain is why that we get to enjoy any order, prosperity, life-giving organization at all.
0: So we, Arc- we live in a world, that, I think Tom Stoppard put it very well in Arcadia. Do you Arcadia, remember where yes, the, the yes. mathematician do, he do, he explains I if, if I take some rice pudding and it's got a lump of jam in the middle and I take a teaspoon and revolve it five times, the rice pudding becomes pink. If I keep the teaspoon still and revolve it the other direction, I don't get the jam back. <laughs> no, right. You never get the jam, you don't get back. The jam back. And that's, that's right. the rule of the world, not getting the jam So the, the, the world is, it tends towards disorder, decay, uh, as we know, sort of the heat death of the universe in the ultimate uh, uh, story. But, um, and so life itself is pushing up, not just against gravity, but against, it has to find ways of efficiently using heat and calories, energy, work, they're all the same thing, essentially, to, to erect a something that will fight the inevitable.
1: That's right, so light, the evolution is possible in, in local defiance of the, the law of entry yeah. meant to be, not in defiance of it uh, globally, because living things take in energy from, from the sun or from uh, deep sea ocean vents. Yeah. Um, and uh, and use it to create zones of order. We do the same thing with our intelligence, where using information, we arrange matter into improbable configurations that that, suit our needs. So that's just part of the larger point, that a scientific understanding doesn't just allow us to build gadgets, but it, it, it does speak to uh, some are our, our ultimate predicament, our ultimate goal, goal in life, uh, which is to use information, that is knowledge, to carve out uh, zones of beneficial order in this massive sea of increasing entropy. And then humanism is the the third major thing, yeah. namely that the uh, what, what are we using this reason and science in service of and the answer is uh, broadly human flourishing, where human flourishing would include life, health, happiness, knowledge, culture, social uh, warmth and, yeah. uh, and, and, and friendship which sounds obvious. Who could be against human flourishing? <laughs> but it turns out that, uh, that humanism is actually a rather uh, exotic moral system. <laughs> that uh, uh, there are alternatives, such as that the uh, ultimate moral purpose is the glory of the, uh, the nation or the tribe or the race, the predominance of the faith, uh, bringing God's commandments to earth, carrying out some historical dialectic or messianic... Uh, age being brought toward toward reality. So just the concentrating the mind on uh, what's good is to make people uh, healthy and happy and uh, and knowledgeable and fulfilled. That's a distinct moral commitment. And that I I identify as one of the contributions of the, uh, the Enlightenment. Now if you put them together, if we deploy knowledge to enhance human flourishing, and I should mention one other ingredient which is a big theme of the Enlightenment is that all of this is The the, uh, humanism is possible because we're endowed by evolution, they they didn't put it that way but we put it that way now, with a sense of sympathy, with the ability to feel each other's pain, to uh, have a a concern with the well-being of others now uh, the sense of sympathy that evolution gave us is rather puny Uh, it applies naturally to our genetic relatives, to our uh, our trading partners, our members of our clan, but it can be pushed outward by Uh, forces of cosmopolitanism, that is, by mixing of people and ideas, and by reason itself, that if you have to um, exchange uh, ideas and values with other people, it's rather hard to maintain that my interests are special and yours aren't because I'm me and you're not. Now, I can say that, but I can't get you to take me seriously. And as soon as I have to negotiate agreements in larger uh, circles of individuals, I'm uh, forced to expand my circle of, of sympathy outward and to treat other people and ultimately other sentient creatures as equivalent in interests to
0: my own. So, in a sense, the altruism that might have evolved in order for us to help our own specific kin group or tribe or clan or small group, an altruism that, as it were, allowed uh, sacrifice for the greater good of a small uh, group to which we belonged, can be applied To a much much larger group. That's
1: that's right, and that's an idea. Uh, Darwin himself proposed this idea. He said that once the once we have the capacity to sympathise with others, and we uh, societies get larger and more complex, there's nothing that can prevent it from uh, uh, expanding to encompass the uh, entire uh, human species. uh, Once that's set, set in motion. Now, if you take these these three ideas of, of reason, science, and humanism, uh, and say that that beginning with the Enlightenment, there has been the goal of uh, understanding the world and uh, applying such knowledge to improve human flourishing, then one uh, ought to enjoy progress. That is, uh, sometimes we solve the problems that face us, we accumulate the <laughs> solutions that work, and over time. Uh, human flourishing should increase.
0: And and those problems are probably best characterized by the four horsemen of the Apocalypse. War, pestilence, famine. What's the fourth one? Anybody? Death, obviously, yeah. Death. death. Uh, We're we're looking forward to the end of this century. Uh, Seems
1: kind of redundant.
0: It (laughs) it, could be three horsemen. In in a sense, that's what they can address. Which were the hugest problems mankind faced for millennia. Uh,
1: Indeed. Uh, And uh, uh, all of which are... Uh, of the fact that we uh, evolved by evolution in a universe governed by entropy. And yes. death is the ultimate kind of entropy yes. as far as humans are concerned. Our bodies um, merge with the soil eventually. Yep. Uh, yeah. So that, that, that's the hope. And then one could ask, well, the Enlightenment ideal of progress sounds good in theory. Um, you know, how did that Enlightenment thing work out? And uh, that's
0: what you have become very well known for is, is, is taking a lot of time, patience, and indeed graphs, to explain how, in fact, that enlightenment <laughs> project has, in your opinion, worked. First, with the better angels uh, uh, of our nature, uh, and, and now with this. You, you, you really are very, very keen to ex- to show in every, Aspect: How, across different nations, and in different parts of the world, and different times in history, the uptick of, of enlightenment has, has served mankind.
1: That's right. Now, two hundred years later, we can we can answer the question, uh, and the question is: There's been enormous progress, uh, and, and you can you can graph it, and I did. And uh, fa- <laughs> th- thanks, in large part, to. Uh, The works of uh, Max Roser, who is here, the Oxford economist, who's the proprietor of uh, the website Our World and Data. Uh, But thanks to that and other publicly available sources of data on uh, human flourishing, you can uh, answer the question, have we made progress or not? Well, to take just one example, through most of human history, life expectancy at birth was around uh, 30. Uh, Today, in the developed world, it's uh, greater than 80. And in the world as a whole, it's uh, 71. And very, very few people guess that it's that high. Um, so uh, the, the, the ultimate good, the ultimate resource, life itself, has vastly increased. Uh, partly it's because of the reduction in uh, childhood mortality. Yeah, in, uh, even in a, uh, of what we think of today as an a affluent, healthy country, Sweden, uh, almost a third of Swedish children died before the age of five, a uh, little more than 200 years ago and then the rate of child mortality plummeted in the 19th century. And what Sweden went through, uh, then other countries went through, including today's, uh, the countries that tragically still have the highest rates of child mortality, such as in sub-Saharan Africa, but their rates are, are uh, plunging as well. And similar stories can be told for uh, education. The world is becoming literate. Uh, I think it's on the order of... Uh, 80% of the world can read or write, whereas the historical average, even in Europe, was closer to 10 to 15%. Mm-hmm. And the people who are illiterate tend to be in their 60s and 70s, right. and so and they're we, dying. Uh, we know which growth. way the trend is
0: going. <laughs> yes. uh,
1: and girls as well as boys, so the world is approaching uh, gender equality in education and literacy. You uh, also see progress in uh, violent crime in uh, any region that beyond the reach of the law in frontier regions, in the the, uh, kind of anarchical, feudal patchwork of medieval Europe, there were rates of homicide that were 30 to 50 times higher than what we see
0: in Europe. countries today. this is not today. war, you're talking about crime. No, this crime. is, this, this yeah. is
1: yeah. uh, highwaymen and brigands and right. uh, barroom bar fights <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and, 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 and ladies slipping arsenic into their husband's tea and uh, <laughs> yeah. all, all of those kinds of personal violence. So that's plunged, yeah. including even in... in uh, an Uh, An outlier for a lot of these trends uh, is, at least among Western democracies, is the United States. The United States is, uh, paradoxically, given how (laughs) prominent it is uh, among Western democracies, is is, uh, something of a a laggard in a lot of these dimensions of... Or basket case, you might say. Right, (laughs) or At least heading that way. But even in the United States, the rate of violent crime has been reduced by uh, 50% in the last uh, 25 years. Uh, perhaps less obvious uh, that war has been in, in decline, you know, not to zero, and the, the civil war in uh, Syria has been the, the worst war in a generation. But even with the, the Syrian civil war, the overall rate of death in warfare is a fraction of it, what it was in the, say, in the 80s when the Iran-Iraq war raged, when the Soviet presence in Afghanistan led to um, horrific fighting for a, a decade. There were civil wars across Africa and Latin America. With the signing of the uh, peace agreement in Colombia in 2016, the last war in the Western Hemisphere came to an end and the last remnant of the Cold War. So five-sixths of the world's surface now is at peace, including areas like Southeast Asia and, for that matter, Europe, which were just uh, red with blood for for centuries. And uh, an entire category of war, uh, war between... Uh, nations, particularly war between great powers, might be uh, obsolescence. obsolescence. The last great power war was the, the uh, Korean War in 1953. Yes. But then, other uh, you can say, well, those are all uh, kind of the measures that you know economists care about. What do they have to do with with uh, uh, the quality of life and the meaning of life? Well, uh, if you look at what you might want to consider to be indices of uh, a meaningful life, like. Uh, leisure time to spend with family and culture as opposed to the drudgery of housework. Well, if you, thanks to the penetration of electricity, running water, uh, washing machines, um, uh, electric stoves, and refrigerators, the amount of time that we spend on housework, which really means the amount of time that women spend on housework, <laughs> has gone from something like 60 hours a week to 20 hours a week.
2: This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala, Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered, and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. Hey there.
1: Uh, the number of hours that we work has fallen by about uh, 20 hours a week in the, in the last century from, from the days of Bob Cratchit and the uh, Christmas Carol. Uh, and so with the combination of less time devoted to housework and less time spent at work, the amount of leisure time has increased both for men and for women. For women, it leveled off in the uh, 90s, and I was kind of puzzled about this. In fact, even had a bit of a dip. The reason is that women spend more time with their children today. So a working mother or a single mother today spends more hours of time with their children than a stay-at-home married mom did in the 1950s.
0: Right. Uh, And you're confident that that correlation is actually causative?
1: Uh, According to the the time-use studies that I plotted, uh, that's what they found. Because
0: obviously people will, I mean, the Freakonomics book, for example, would say that American Crime rate has gone down because abortion rates went up at exactly the time that a generation of criminals would have been born that weren't up because of Wade versus Roe. I'm sure you've read that book. Yes, Uh, Um,
1: that turns out not to be, it it falls into the category of uh, too cute to be true. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So it's, uh, that turns out, I mean, it was an ingenious theory, it's it's not the right theory. and, And
0: obviously, one of the first things that would have been put to you, because a lot of people will be hissing and saying, ah, but, ah, but, ah, but. Um, we, we're used to damning our own culture, uh, to, to, to seeing it as destructive, to seeing science as ruining the world, uh, you know, from going from a biosphere, you know, well from a geosphere to a biosphere to a noosphere, or, or if we now like to call it the Anthropocene, you know, that we have altered Mother Earth and also all these things you've said have brought us so much leisure time and uh, uh, peace and uh, prosperity. Surely they've also brought us anxiety, unhappiness, suicide, um, and this is the illness that, that, are, uh, that, that is the price we pay for all the benefits that the Enlightenment may have given us. But you address this in the book as well. Yes, so
1: I have a, a, a yeah.
0: chapter on happiness yeah. where
1: I... Um Uh, look at data on just self-reported happiness. You just ask people, how happy are you? I mean, who could be a better judge? Uh, (laughs) Or uh, imagine yourself, imagine the worst possible life that you can imagine and let's call that... Uh, the bottom rung of a ladder, and the best possible life you can imagine, that, let's call it the, the top of the ladder, and there are ten rungs, what rung would you, would you say you're, you're at? That's another way of asking a, a related but not identical question. When you, when you, when you do that, you find that uh, in a majority of countries for which we have data over time, happiness has increased, but more, uh, that only gives you a, a, a sample of countries where the data go back. They don't go back that far. On the other hand, we also find that those data tend to correlate... Uh, with GDP per, per capita. Uh, so contrary to the idea that money can't buy happiness, I mean it can't you know, exactly for every individual, but, but on average it kind of does. And so as the world has gotten more affluent and, and all countries have gotten more affluent, there's reason to believe that, uh, that world happiness has, has risen. As for uh, depression, anxiety, psychopathology, there's a widespread belief that we're, we're suffering from a new epidemic of, um, of, of mental illness, particularly um, depression. Um, but it turns out not to survive fact-checking, that um, there's been more uh, uh, awareness of depression, there's more, I mean, uh, uh, as you know, state, yeah. diagnosis, and also um, removal of stigmas that people... Uh, share their experience of, of uh, suffering from depression, which has the beneficial effect of having other people coming out and, and uh, no- noting their own and, and getting uh, treatment, yeah. which is, uh, which, which, it, which can be effective. But it leads to an illusion that depression has actually increased. And the surveys that try to apply a constant yardstick over the decades uh, suggest that it, that it has not.
0: Yeah. Uh, a bit like homosexuality, because mad gay people like me have come out. Uh, It seems there are more of us, but it's (laughs) simply that we're noisier. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Um, And then there's the, you know, Thomas Piketty and others have focused on uh, the issue of inequality, that it seems to be going that way. Um, And you also have things to say about that that are quite sort of, wow, eye-popping to some extent. Yeah. So,
1: inequality can be measured a lot of different ways. And this is something that I discovered as I kind of uh, uh, sank further and further into the inequality. Or tar pit. Uh, <laughs> uh, even it's very hard to, even to get an economist to say, well, what exactly is the Gini index for the United States in the year, you know, 2015? And you can get like five different answers depending on how it's calculated. But uh, a couple of things I was able to establish from, from a, this dip into the literature, and partly with the help of uh, our World in Data. Uh, one is that globally inequality is uh, is decreasing. Um, that, that across the planet. That whether it's measured in comparisons uh, across countries where each country is a unit or as best we can estimate it in the global population uh inequality is decreasing and that's just because poor countries are getting richer so much quickly more quickly than rich countries are getting richer uh, mm. and, it, it, uh, and and one of the uh, an, uh, an astonishing fact of progress that it, that we didn't discuss in, in when I went through the list is that global poverty is de- decreasing, global extreme poverty, I should say, uh, defined by the World Bank as a, a $1.90 p- uh, per day in, in international um, dollars, uh, a, a kind of an arbitrary cutoff for the ability to feel, feed yourself and your, and your family. By some historical estimates, the rate of extreme poverty 200 years ago was about 90%. That is, about 10% of the world was not extremely poor. Now, uh, the figures have reversed and uh, 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 less than 10% of the world is extremely poor. So because of this massive uh, increase in the fortunes of the worst-off, in countries like China and Bangladesh and uh, in many of the sub-Saharan African countries in Latin America, uh, global inequality has has, uh, decreased. Now, unquestionably, inequality has increased within... Uh, many Western wealthy countries, particularly for whatever reason, uh, English-speaking ones, yeah. uh, uh, England, United States, uh, Australia. Yeah. But uh, I suggest that inequality is not in its economic inequality, uh, is not in itself a, uh, an evil, that it's practically impossible to avoid in any kind of uh, economy that isn't uh, imposed from the top down by totalitarian means. And as Walter Scheidel p- uh, points out in his new book, uh, The Great Leveling, the most effective ways, if you really want to reduce inequality, uh, the most effective ways are violent revolution, um, pandemics, yeah. um, mass mobilization warfare, and state collapse. Uh, <laughs> which kind of should remind us that, any, as he puts it, be careful of what you wish for. Yes. And I think that the moral imperative is really not inequality per se. Uh, but it's some of the co- possible concomitants of inequality. One of them is political inequality. Uh, and the, anger, the, resentment. And, and the fact that the, the, the rich have too much political influence, oh, right. yes. uh, especially yes. in the United States. But yes. also, but really morally, what, what ought to uh, uh, attract our concern is, is poverty, is how much people yeah. at the bottom have, not how big is the gap between them and, the, and those at the top. And there, thanks to... Uh, well, in, in, especially in developing countries, thanks to market economies that have been growing and, and um, globalization, um, there's been a massive increase in the fortunes of the poor. In wealthier countries, the, uh, the, the welfare state has put a floor under the um, uh, poverty levels. And so even in the United States, which is... Famously libertarian compared to its um, western peers, the United States has a pretty substantial welfare state, and as a result, poverty when it 's measured in absolute terms, not in terms of uh, percentage of, uh, of of the um, Income of the population, mm. but in terms of what people can afford, can you afford to feed yourself and clothe yourself, travel Has, to other countries? Travel so, to other countries yeah. It's fallen from about, depending on how it's measured, from about thirty percent of the population in uh, 1960 to something like five percent of the population now, when it's measured taking into account government benefits and the uh, falling cost of many goods and services. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and, and I, uh, what I suggest is that it's really poverty that morally that
0: we ought to concentrate on and not so much inequality. Absolutely. And so, taking your book, you lay out an argument that the Enlightenment and what followed it as a result of open thought, free reasoning and, and, and all the advantages of science and humanism that led to industrial revolutions and, and yes, all kinds of new sorts of poverty, but has brought us to a not exactly a shining mountain top, but to a place which was unimaginable even 50 years ago to some extent in terms of war, starvation and, and these other I- in indexes, indices that you, you go by. So the book might have stopped there, but of course, really, you could, you could subtitle it not the case for reason, science, humanism and progress, but, you know, the enlightened society and its enemies uh, with, <laughs> with a bow to Hayek. So why is it that we as children, grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren of the Enlightenment seem to be so disrespectful of it, so doubting of it, so cautious, so skeptical. W- 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 why yeah. don't we accept that it has given us everything we have and speak its language?
1: Yeah, and, and it's um, uh, an important theme of the book is that the, this progress doesn't isn't, isn't some mystical uh, upward, a pointing arc. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is not some... Historical dialectic that inevitably makes us better and better until we reach utopia um, it 's a result of uh, specific efforts to solve problems and to uh, retain the, the solutions that are effective, and that if there is uh, an abandonment of that principle, then progress can, could go into reverse and there, of course, there have been catastrophes where so it has gone into reverse and there are threats today in uh, authoritarian populist movements that explicitly reject a lot of the uh, the themes. In the institutions of the Enlightenment, uh, such as Trumpism in the United States and, and some of the populist movements in Europe. Um, as opposed to universal human flourishing, they, they uh, prioritize the, the greatness of the, of the nation, the, the glory of, of, of uh, Russia or the greatness of the United States. As opposed to institutions of global cooperation, which were a, a theme of the Enlightenment, there's the, the idea that there should be zero-sum competition uh, between nations vying for, for greatness as opposed to a, uh, a reliance on science and reason. There's uh, an in- invoking of religion and uh, a re-empowering of uh, religious factions. There's often specific pushback against uh, scientific discoveries such as vaccine, vaccines. There's, there's and, uh, a story in
0: the papers today about, from the WHO talking about the huge rise in, in measles in, in Europe as a result of, of people uh, not mean, vaccinated. A
1: self-imposed wound. Yeah. <laughs> we kind of are, are on the verge of licking that. Uh, yeah. So, there are, so the, and the question is why in an age of, uh, of progress behind us are we suddenly facing these new these new threats. Now, partly it's because there are, um, I think there are, there are features in human nature that uh, have uh, always made uh, authoritarianism, tribalism um, uh, appealing, that a lot of the ideas of the enlightenment are rather exotic discoveries that are enormously beneficial, but they don't come naturally to the human mind, and they've got to be kind of relearned and, and uh, redefended every generation that it's much uh, more natural to think of the inherent goodness of of my clan and to imagine that the chief directly embodies the inherent goodness and virtue of my clan, as opposed to the Enlightenment idea, most specifically articulated by the American framers, that political leadership should just be a... uh, basically a bunch of committees with a committee chair that is uh, given the responsibility of keeping people from each other's throats and for encouraging commerce, but that must live by rules that justify whatever power we apply to them, yes. as opposed to a strong man who is... Uh, because, um,
0: I mean, using America and the Enlightenment and the, you know, the beautiful white columns of, of Washington and the, you know, the, 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 the phrasing of the Declaration of Independence and so on, um, uh, a lot of Americans, less than 100 years after uh, America became a country were puzzled beyond belief why a country set out on such perfect enlightenment principles and ideals should have descended into such appalling carnage, the most bloody internecine civil war still to this date in history in its civil war. The murder massacre of species of animal and to us more importantly, uh, huge tribes of uh, Native American peoples uh, in the cruelest possible way. Gangland violence beginning in all the cities. This was a country founded in exactly Enlightenment principles, written down by Jefferson, who is a, one of the heroes of the Enlightenment, uh, influenced by Payne, another hero of the Enlightenment, and by Franklin. These these glorious people with, but they still believed in slavery um, uh, and the enlightenment gave rise first and foremost to colonization, the enslavement and the exploitation of native peoples, of ordinary people uh, conquered in their lands and so, there's a way of seeing the Enlightenment as having been like a virus, and you can see why people in the third world might say, "Well, your Enlightenment didn't enlighten us. It was either you're changing your missionary stance from being a Catholic or a Methodist missionary to being an Enlightenment missionary, but that, I'm being a devil's advocate." Yeah. Avocado. yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. yeah.
1: No, I, I think it's—I uh, do think it's—it uh, it is certainly true that one mustn't identify the Enlightenment uh, with the the West, uh, and particularly not with the United States, even though the United States Constitution and Declaration of Independence were magnificent Enlightenment statements. But uh, the Enlightenment uh, clearly didn't didn't penetrate uh, large parts of the United States, which retained more of a... Kind of a a manly culture of honor as a way of organizing society rather than principles justified in uh, um, a set of propositions. Mm -hmm. And there's long been in the United States a divide more or less coinciding with the North and the South uh, as to whether society should be organized by institutions justified by enlightenment principles, or by individuals um, uh, defending themselves and their, their interests by uh, defending their honor. Slavery, of course, is as old as civilization. Uh, the Slavery is pretty much the, the rule rather than the exception until the 18th century. Yeah all of the so-called great civilizations were, were uh, slave-holding civilizations, including so-called democratic Athens, including yeah. Rome, including all the, the, the uh, biblical yeah. civilizations. Yeah. And that was carried over and, uh, and expanded in the um,
0: European... A Christian might say, of course, that it was mostly Christians, uh, uh, well, dissident Christians, who, who first... Uh, uh, who first suggested, you know, Wilberforce people like that? Well, it was Quakers. Uh, Quakers, not indeed. All, yes, but not The, not least, all, uh, the most, ob, the least objectionable. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I, I but not, all,
1: not all Christians <laughs> are Quakers.
0: Uh, and <laughs> there was a Fry who was one of the friends of Fox, who was an early, early. Uh, yes. Oh, my, was that right? My okay. mother's side is Jewish. My father's side is Quakers. So. Okay. <laughs> yes. um, um, but yeah... So it,
1: I, I think it's, a, it's an anachronistic to uh, to connect the, 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 the slave trade with enlightenment. Yes, the I, I suppose the point I'm making
0: is, yeah religionists might argue that their religion whether it's Islam or Christianity or Buddhism is almost like a sort of serum like, a, like Oliver Sacks eldopa. El Dopa. You, you inject it in someone and they instantly have a structure and a way of looking at the world which can transform them and they can live by but if you believe in um, the enlightenment and, and the, the four pillars of it that you've uh, uh, you know adumbrated then, then uh, or laid out um, then that isn't a serum it, it clearly doesn't it's not a magic bullet it doesn't Transform you or the world, it's, it's a series of ways of working towards right. something. It's much tougher than a religion. It's not magical
1: thinking. <laughs> right. And so there is a, a challenge and I, I, I end the book by uh, wondering whether uh, as many um, cultural conservatives claim um, that modern secular humanism, uh, liberal cosmopolitanism, enlightenment values are just too tepid to engage uh, human animal spirits, that they just, they won't fire people up uh, and that religion will never go away because it speaks to deep yearnings in the soul and likewise with nationalism. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical of that for a number of reasons. One of them is that uh, societies that, that most carry out uh, enlightenment principles, the, the, the secular uh, Western democracies like New Zealand and Denmark and Canada, are, um, they don't seem to be collapsing in spiritual uh, enemy. They seem to be rather pleasant places to live. People to be yes. doing just fine. They don't seem to be uh, you know, uh, joining ISIS in great numbers to give meaning to their lives. <laughs> uh, they also are the main destination of people who vote with, vote with their feet. I mean, everyone wants to go to the, 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 the great enlightenment countries. That, that, that's, that's where, right. including the people from the... The, the, the religiously excitable zones of the world uh, they, they don 't want to stay there they want to go to Denmark <laughs> <laughs> and i I raised the question of whether uh, do we need do, do we need the kind of secular humanist equivalent do we need uh, you know uh, uh, humanist preachers thumping copies of Spinoza's ethics on the, on the pulpit. And, uh, uh, <laughs> well, you I st- have,
0: I won't say suffered, but you and, and people we know, uh, Christopher Hitchens when he was around, and uh, R- Richard Dawkins, and uh, Sam Harris, and uh, Daniel Dennett, and, and others have been regarded as almost evangelical fundamentalist in your humanism, your secularism, and so on. Um, how would you... Do I, don't,
1: I don't think that that's uh, true. I mean, it's certainly not, not true of me, and, it's, mm-hmm. and I, don't think, I don't think it's true of the, the so-called uh, uh, the four horsemen of the new atheism, yeah. uh, Hitchens, Harris, Dennett, and um, uh, Dawkins. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, paradoxically, the, the critics of secular humanism who say that it doesn't uh, speak to the human spirit are almost calling for exactly that. Like, well your movement isn't going to succeed until you have your evangelical prophets yes. of, of secular humanism. And, you know, do we need to have you know, humanist congregations where people kind of <laughs> roll back their eyes in ecstasy and babble in Esperanto?
0: So <laughs> uh, there was or, a man who I'm sure you knew as yeah. I did, who was a very ornery and uh, enraging man, but a very brilliant one in his own way, Stephen Jay Gould, oh, yes. the, the, right. the paleontologist. He I think he was the man who first proposed what, what he called Noma, the, the non-overlapping magisteria. In yes. other words, um, he saw that where science and religion or spirituality, uh, they can have their own magisteria, their own realms, their own domains. I think it's ultimately very unsatisfactory because it's impossible for science not to in, you know, look at everything. Um, but w- w- what yes. is your view of that? That you know, whereof we should not speak, we should remain silent because Wittgenstein, an enemy of of scientism said, right. what's your, how do you speak to that?
1: Well, well Steve Gould didn't seem to grasp that you, could, that you could have a morality that did not depend on religion. He yeah. kind of gave religion the franchise for, for morality, yes. he said, you know, science can't dictate our morals, and strictly speaking that's true, uh, although I think it can be exaggerated, uh, therefore it's religion's job. But he kind of missed out on the whole Enlightenment thing, that you can justify morality in terms of... I mean, you could do it on utilitarian grounds, yes. the, what makes the largest number of people well-off is moral. You could do it on deontological grounds. There are certain principles like Kantian, life and
0: choice Kantian yeah. grounds. Yeah. And you don't, or the social contract, I suppose, is the other The social option. contract, yeah. indeed.
1: But yeah. and you don't have to uh, call in a, uh, a deity to do it. Mm-hmm. But uh, for, all, for all of Steve's vast erudition and, and knowledge and... Uh, uh, he, he kind of missed that the whole Enlightenment principle. I mean, that was, I, I think, was a uh, uh, something of a vacuum in his uh, Some in his Stevens landscape.
0: can be wrong. No, <laughs> I, I, I wanted just to quote one thing, which really fascinated me, because it might be a criticism levelled at you. That here, when, when you talk about reason, um, you use two archetypes, as it were, two opposites, um, and and you miss out the middle. And I think. Perhaps that's an interesting idea. You, you, you say opposing reason is, by definition, unreasonable. Um, there hasn't stopped a slew of irrationalists from favoring the heart over the head, the limbic system over the cortex, blinking over thinking, McCoy over Spock. And, um, now, you, you may say, well, talking Star Trek seems a bit silly, but actually, um, this is going to bring me to our dear friend Nietzsche. Now, Nietzsche, in his book, The Birth of Tragedy, He he pulled on two Greek gods, Dionysus and and Apollo, to try and explain two sides of human nature, what Freud might have called the id and the uh, superego or the ego, I have to tell which it is. In other words, that Greek tragedy, as he saw it, was was playing off on the tensions between the tribal, bloodlust, frenzied side of our animal selves and this rational, Apollonian, harmonious side of ourselves. And oddly enough, and Gene Roddenberry was a genius. If you look at Star Trek, there is McCoy, who's always going, you green-blooded monster, Spock. <laughs> and Spock is saying, fascinating. That one of, them is, <laughs> one of them is logic, you know. How can your logic account for that, Spock? And, and McCoy, the Doctor, is physical and primal and emotional. But the whole point is, in the middle is Kirk, it's Kirk, who, who tries to be both. That they will go to a planet which is all id, and Kirk will try and explain that there is <laughs> such a thing as reason and order, or they will go to one that is all order, and he will try and say, where is your humanity? <laughs> and, and you really do have it in for, for Nietzsche, because you see the, the, the neo-Nazi or not neo, crypto or proto-Nazi side of, uh, of Nietzsche, this, the, the man and Superman, which some people regard as a, a fiction that he was putting forward. not. The, although he did die mad, so it's very hard to know. But I just wanted to see—you know—the the whole, the Romantic movement, constantly crashed waves against the wall of the Enlightenment, uh, and it's still doing it today. That Romantic sense of the individual, the maverick, aside from the tribe, and, and it can become insane in Nazism or Ayn Randism. Or, but but it also is something we can instinctively feel for, can't we?
1: Yes, and I think I think it can lead to some great great art, great plot lines, but it isn't much of a way to organize politics in society. <laughs> <laughs> and society. And I, and I might add, uh, quoting from a, uh, a great figure, "You would not enjoy Nietzsche, sir. He's fundamentally unsound."
0: Jeeves. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Jeeves, that's exactly. Right. Yes. Absolutely right. It, Jeeves to, like Spinoza. <laughs>
1: Jeeves like Spinoza, and to the bring good it. Good Jewish
0: philosopher. <laughs> exactly, and, and to
1: bring it home. Captain Kirk was played by a, uh, a fellow uh, Montreal
0: Jew, uh, William Shatner. Of course, he was a that's...
1: Lanceman. A, a, a part of my, my
0: tribe. So, now it's good you mention Canada because you are, of course, Canadian, and I suppose there is, you know, the archetype public intellectual Canadian was the great Marshall McLuhan, a man of extraordinary influence to this day, whose prophecies and sense of how society would uh, respond to what he famously called the global village and uh, uh, the anxieties that the the written word, the first information age movement would bring about. And uh, You read him today and it's still pretty astonishing. He's quite difficult to read sometimes but an extraordinary man and you have fitted this uh, role as as a Canadian uh, public intellectual too and the third man who's recently come rather into the news is Jordan Peterson and while most people would have thought well there's Stephen Pinker he's a you know liberal humanist and there's this Jordan Peterson is he perhaps a bit right wing is he does he sort of dog whistle a little for the alt right there was a famous I'm sure you saw his interview here on Channel 4 television, did you, with I did. Kathy Newman? In, um, I did, yes. Now, for those who don't know, he's, a, he's also, like you, a, a psych- psychologist, essentially, That's isn't right. he? Yep. Um, and he's written um, some very successful b- books. Um, I, but you both, I think, meet on your detestation of what you might call, what he would certainly call, cultural Marxism in the campus. And you yourself have suffered from some extraordinary blowback on that. And I'd love to just to share the story of what happened to you recently when you spoke about, very sensibly, about the nature of, uh, you know, uh, de and all the things we are aware of in, uh, in American, particularly American academic instances.
1: Yes, I, I participated in an event at uh, Harvard organized by the Open Campus Initiative, which is a student organization uh, dedicated to free speech, belying the common accusation that the entire millennial generation doesn't get the concept of free speech, and they're just social justice warriors and snowflakes. and So these are our, our Harvard students who are uh, qu- quite adamant in de- defending what they, they call an open campus, in conjunction with um, uh, Spiked Magazine here in the yep. UK, and the panel that they convened was, um, did political correctness help elect Trump? And they had it on the close to the anniversary of the uh, Trumpocalypse. Yes. <laughs> yeah, never, never brave. <laughs> uh, and they had, uh, they had me, they had Wendy Kamner, a well-known Boston-area civil libertarian, uh, and uh, Brendan Jones. And the, uh, a number of us argued that, uh, obviously, the, the Trump victory had a number of causes, but one of them was that there is a was, was a, there's certainly a sector of the population that voted for uh, Trump despite his you know, flagrant um, uh, um, unsuitability for, for, for the job uh, as a reaction to uh, to the um, stifling of uh, opinions in uh, forums such as uh, uh, college campuses. And in particular, this is true of the, uh, I pointed out of the alt-right. By alt-right, I don't mean the skinheads with the tiki torches, the neo-Nazis, but rather the rather uh, highly educated, often tech-savvy, young, uh, almost exclusively men, who uh, find themselves, uh, come across empirical facts that are undiscussable in college campuses, such as the fact that different ethnic groups don't have the same crime rates, that uh, men and women aren't indistinguishable, yeah. that uh, capitalist uh, economies are more efficient and more humane than than um, uh, communist ones, yeah. uh, and they find themso- themselves immediately uh, stomped on like a ton of bricks if, they, if, if uh, any of these facts are so much as mentioned. They um, withdraw... Uh, uh, assuming that there are certain uh, truths that the mainstream establishment can't handle, then they spin them in the most uh, toxic possible directions because they've never had a chance for these uh, opinions to be put into context, such as the fact that there are differences between the sexes uh, doesn't mean that uh, sexism is justified. No, there's no kind of corollary. Because fairness and sameness are not the same thing, to to quote uh, Helena Cronin, um, that... uh, All abilities that show differences in the means show enormous overlap in the distributions, such as that for any, there are a number of traits in which uh, men on average are uh, better than women, but many traits for which women are better than men. Uh, Likewise, the fact that there are differences in the crime rates now for uh, African-Americans and uh, whites is just part of a general pattern that there are always differences. But those secondary
0: explanations, those glosses on the statistics aren't got to because... they never got to. Because everything is closed down. You're not allowed to say there is more crime here than there. You're not allowed to say there are differences between genders here.
1: Exactly. So you don't come across other equally relevant facts. You can't even explain them. It used to be that that, 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 uh, Irish Americans had higher crime rates than Protestant Americans. That was a gap that uh, that disappeared and so the black-white gap could disappear as well. Yeah. But if you only get the, uh, the taboo fact and not the, the context and the arguments that uh, prevent you from taking that fact and yeah. uh, drawing uh, uh, harmful consequences, then you will draw the harmful consequences. And you said Yeah, much at
0: this meeting. Yeah, and the, and the and result is the, the
1: alt-right. And, and, and I, the reason that I know this has happened, uh, this is not speculation, is that I've gotten uh, emails from uh, uh, disturbingly former students of mine at Harvard, so these are, 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 are no dummies, mm-hmm. uh, from um, uh, young men in tech, uh, Jamie Demore, being an example, not that I've ever contacted him, but he's almost a, a, a prototype. Uh, and they are naturally, because of the suppression of, uh, of uh, speech and debate, the alt right becomes their congenial uh, landing site, and that, that and that's they a fat feed each compliment. other
0: on what else is being kept uh, in the in the dark by the the libtards, the, the lefties, and so on. <laughs> Indeed, yeah.
1: and they can say that there are certain things that are you know that, that the, the academic uh, mainstream can't handle the truth, and, and you know there's a there's a sense in which they're they're right, but then those ideologies can kind of fester without the proper uh, immune response. Yeah. And the result is that you have uh, intelligent people voting for a bizarrely dangerous and unqualified uh, candidate for president. Uh, Anyway, so those remarks were then uh, doctored so that only the part that says that, in which I noted that there are. Uh, intelligent and educated members of the alt-right, which I know for a fact because some of them were Harvard students. Yeah. Uh, and Milo
0: Yiannopoulos went to Cambridge.
1: Yeah. Uh, an- yeah. Another example. Yeah. Uh, uh, and th- that was been doctored and presented both on left-wing sites and, and right-wing sites as a kind of uh, support for the alt-right, whereas it was
0: actually a, a tactic for starving the alt-right. So you... The, 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 so So sensitive, so hypersensitive, raw are the culture wars that you would suddenly being accused by the left of being right-wing because the right-wing had edited it's everything you had said. It, yes. and
1: For, it. Fortunately, the, both the, the Guardian and The New York Times came to my defense. There was actually an article in the... Uh, an op-ed in The New York Times entitled How Social Media Are Making Us Stupid and used that as the, the way that I was taken out of context as a, a prime and example.
0: Am I being very stupid in saying that, in the same way at the very beginning, you said what language taught you about... Um, what's programmed, what's coded within us, how language is a faculty, uh, allowed you to put that idea out into other human faculties. And actually, isn't that what formalism and structuralism uh, that then became the postmodernism that you so decry and deplore, isn't that what they did? They said, let's look at language as a kind of structure and let's use what we know about language, including phonology and um, uh, phonemes and apply them to social Activity, hence the E.M. Uh, suffix, becoming such a common thing now that we find, you know, myth-emes and, of course, memes that Richard Dawkins coined. That they did the same thing. They took the intellectual idea of study of language and said society is a kind of language. It has the same sorts of rules. It's the same idea. But this is something, of course, you fundamentally disagree with: is postmodern thinking on yeah. on society. And I wondered if you could just elaborate on that and why you think it's so so deleterious to yes. to, to our culture.
1: No, you're right. There was a, a, a kind of circuitous route by which the structural linguistics of Roman Jakobson and Trubetzkoy, sir, so sir, so, uh, yeah. uh, so, so then yeah. then got um, uh, uh, ported over in anthropology by Claude Lévi-Strauss, yeah, uh, and then
0: uh, to Marxism without serve and so on, yeah, uh, indeed, yeah. and then
1: and then taken into the uh, I think rather uh, um, uh, eccentric uh, position that. Uh, thought consists of nothing but arbitrary um, oppositions in self-contained symbol systems. Although the structuralism then became post-structuralism, which uh, uh, in in fairly abstruse uh, uh, ways abandoned the uh, exact propositions of structural linguistics and anthropology. But still it retained the idea, which then got carried over into uh, uh, Derrida's deconstructionism, that all statements are inherently um, paradoxical or circular because they're just uh, symbols that refer to other symbols that refer to other symbols in a kind of closed circle. But what it left out of the entire discussion in uh, the the entire course of modern linguistics is there's not just syntax and phonology, but there's also semantics. That is, language refers to stuff. Uh, And um, that got left out. It refers to stuff both because uh, it's connected to the world via uh, perception. Uh, we actually, um, our, our linguistic symbols like dog and table um, aren't just defined in like a dictionary definition uh, in, in terms of uh, you know, an animal and mammal, but they also, you know, they are they're little pictures in the dictionary yes. uh, and they, our, our perceptual system connects us to reality. And they're also connected to a web of inference of um, logical conclusions that we can draw that uh, make uh, meaning not completely arbitrary, but uh, enmeshed with our scientific understanding of the world. The fact that uh, uh, a dog is a mammal and a mammal is a a living thing. These aren't just arbitrary symbols, but they actually have content.
0: And that widens out socially into, I suppose, the argument between relativism and...
1: What is the opposite of relativism? Real, mean, reali- realism.
0: You'd say realism because yes. they would say absolutism. <laughs> yes,
1: right. No, realism. Scientific yeah. realism, which is the, the philosophy of science, that scientific uh, propositions are
0: actually about something. They're actually about no. the world, and they can be true or false. So, Even, you know, because... Just to sort of finish off, in in a way, one of the things we've started to learn, those of us who are curious about neuroscience, uh, is that since you started writing even, one of the things that's become even more apparent to David Eagleton and Kahneman and Tversky and and, and all these others have shown us how contingent our knowledge is. Um, They've taken ideas, obvious ideas we grew up with, like um, illusions, you know, uh, pictures, you know, are they two faces or a candlestick, or is this a straight line, you know, we realize how our brain is interpreting reality in a very non-realist way, Um, and so we also now realize that Reason itself is not stable or reliable. It seems very fragile. You write brilliantly about some of the experiments that show intelligent, liberal people who believe in evolution don't actually understand it. And if they're asked a few questions, uh, which is true, they will often get it wrong on the basis of their misunderstanding of basic Darwinism. And so, you kind of think, well, maybe there's something in this. Not necessarily Derrida or Lacan Foucault or any particular of these idiotic Frenchmen whose greatest... (laughs) Well, if if only they could write. Roland Barthes could write, so you could believe in him because he wrote beautifully. But they write so badly, they can't be true. (laughs) Must be true. But but nonetheless, this idea that our our reality is not what it seems and... And that, you, that somehow you're being scientistist You're being, a, you know, you're, you're guilty of scientism. You're, you're too cold and real. And actually life is more fragile and ethereal and strange and difficult. Um, yes. Well, how
1: well, do you answer? Well, that? Life is fragile and strange and, and uh, will always have to be mystifying. But uh, when we... When we develop policies, when we develop institutions, especially ones that, that wield power. We ought, must, to the best of our ability, root them in reason and, and scientific reality, which is the never going to be absolute, but is the uh, only reality that we can uh, approach. And, and crucially, uh, you, you invoked people in my own profession, like Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman, who, of course, have shown the limitations of, of human reason that we're, we're vulnerable to illusions the, the, the of range biases. Biases, yeah. I'm sorry, yeah. but the And uh, and I note that there's a a false conclusion that some people draw that this is a refutation of the Enlightenment belief that we're all that we're completely rational. Now, the Enlightenment thinkers were adamant that we're not rational. Uh, They were some of the the the, the best students of human quirks and follies, and people like Adam Smith and David Hume and and, uh, Spinoza just went to town with our, our our emotional. Uh, passions uh, are, are the, the fallacies that we're, we're, we're vulnerable to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the, uh, what I take to be the point of the Enlightenment emphasis on reason is not that uh, uh, every person is inherently rational, but that we, we do have some capacity for rationality, and we must if we're even discussing the question, because the only way you could say humans uh, are irrational is if you had some benchmark of rationality against which to compare them, otherwise yes. the question itself would be meaningless. So yes,
0: compared to ladybirds or compared to uh, ah.
1: bears. Well, also that, that when, when people um, make some fallacy, like taking a, a stereotype, the prototypical example would be uh, uh, Linda, the, uh, right. the, the articulate woman committed to social justice yes. and uh, activism. Is she more likely to be a, um, a bank teller or a feminist bank teller? People say she's more likely to be a feminist bank teller. Now, that, of course, violates the the laws of uh, probability because the probability of a uh, conjunction always has to be less than or equal to the probability of uh, one of the um, conjuncts. So, since all feminist (laughs) bank tellers are bank tellers, it's actually impossible for it to be more likely that she's a feminist bank teller than a bank teller. (laughs) Because they're all... Now, this, of course... now, the, th- th- yeah. the fact that I can explain it, yeah. and that they explained yeah. it, that they called it a fallacy, well, they called it a fallacy like compared to what? Compared to laws of logic and probability, which you know, they could understand, so at least they're rational. Anyone yeah. who reads them can understand them, so the people who read it are rational. So
0: it's a mistake to say that we're
1: incapable of rationality, yeah. even if it doesn't come easy to us.
0: But does it mean that we have to submit, because I'm sure I'm not alone in this room of finding your splendid, almost Bertrand Russell-like, uh, uh use of logic there. Um, I can, oh, God, that's what happens when I read philosophy. I have to turn back two pages. Yeah, I've got it, I've got it. Turn the page. I've lost it again. Go back. <laughs> oh, Damn! What was the proposition? What was the postulate? What was the syllogism? What was the, oh, you know, and, and uh, in, even in your, I have to say, your wonderful graphs that you and your, your friend here has uh, been produced, yeah. um, suddenly a word like percentile will, or quantile <laughs> will come up. And if it ends in aisle... I, I, know
2: what it means. What's the difference
0: in a percentage and a percentile? And I'm obviously, and so I have to basically say, Stephen knows what he's talking about. I I assume he's right. And in a sense, some people would argue that that's no different to the hermeneutic uh, exegesis that uh, that the priest and the you know, the hierophant is is is, is explaining to their obedient flock. I can only I can interpret these facts and, and the moment you start to use words that are from science and from logic, most of us go uh, I, I, guess I sort of followed it and then you said conjunct. Then oh, I, Yes. Okay. Then I Lost it.
1: You know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so yes. To, so to the the extent in which it, it, it feels like that, then then there's been a, f- a failure. That I failed. Well, because it, it has really, to be. Richard Feynman would
0: have claimed that he could explain it to an eleven year old if it was. Uh, well, that, that's that is the yeah.
1: aspiration, yeah. and and it, indeed it would be completely contrary to the spirit of science for scientists to be considered to be some some uh, uh, priesthood. Yeah. It's got to be that you might have to put a little work into it, but you can reconstruct the logic it's for yourself. It's all
0: over. Yeah. It must be.
1: And so the the overall principle is that we uh, obviously are uh, capable of reason, just to have this discussion in the first place, and that there are norms and institutions that can uh, foster reason uh, collectively, if not necessarily individually in in each one of us. So uh, norms such as uh, free speech, that if you uh, say something, someone else is allowed to criticize it, so you can't rest on authority. Such as empirical testing such as uh, peer review, such as double-blind studies, all of the, uh, in the court of law, standards of evidence, standards of, of, uh, of, of justice, um, fact-finding commissions, journalistic um, ethics, all of the principles that make us collectively smarter than any of us individually uh, would be, um, and, and that's what we have to uh, uh, rely upon. Not any assumption that any individual in isolation is particularly wise or rational.
0: Yes. I mean, in the end, I'm always prepared to believe a mathematician or scientist because they can say at three minutes past 11 on the 23rd of June in the year 2031, <laughs> there will be an eclipse here. And if you want, they'll show you they're working. Exactly. And I've never heard a priest or a, 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 <laughs> a spiritualist ever never predict anything like that. Yeah, or i switch the switch and the light goes on. It, it, it almost seems magic to me, but I know that if I were to study long enough, I would find the chain of reasoning, the chain of discovery that has led to that light turning on. Whereas everything else is either magical thinking or mystery or uh, you know, a sort of hidden, you have to believe without being shown the working.
1: Yeah, indeed. And there is, in terms of the um, arcane... Technical vocabulary being inaccessible to a uh, you know, wide lay um, readership. That itself changes over time because there has been a steady trickle down of technical concepts from scientists and scholars and and policy wonks into conventional understanding. And that may even be one of the drivers of uh, perhaps the most bizarre uh, index of progress uh, or example of progress, the Flynn effect, the rise in IQ scores over the the decades uh, by about three IQ points per decade, resulting in a cumulative improvement of about 30 IQ points over the century. Uh, and one of the explanations is how, how that could happen, given that uh, it's not like we've... Uh,
0: they read your books.
1: <laughs> well, they've read... People, people have, have uh, read books and had access to some of what started out as arcane ideas that then kind of proliferate through the, the population. And so ideas that we even take for granted now started out as pretty exotic uh, concepts. So just an example. You know, nowadays, if someone said, well, I... Um, I ate some uh, uh, dandelions and my uh, my headache doesn't bother me anymore. And you say, oh, that's that's probably just a placebo effect. (laughs) It's just a a placebo. Now, the placebo effect was at one point a fairly exotic concept in epidemiology, but now most educated people kind of know what it is. Or a correlation versus causation. Uh, um, Win-win
0: situation. Uh, Trade-off, market. Zero-sum game. Zero-sum game. Uh, These are things we're familiar with which are quite... With, I mean, really quite complex ideas uh, might have been considered 100 years ago, needing a lot of explanations. Zero
1: sum was, came out of game theory, yes. a fairly yeah. arcane branch yeah. of mathematics. Yeah. So what can happen is with education, and also not not just education in school, but in um, proliferation of ideas through you know the, the BBC and, and magazines, yes. and, or and, and websites yeah. and, and so on that uh, that that the kind of Baseline understanding can be smarter. It can become smarter, and so more sophisticated concepts become part of the conventional wisdom.
0: Well, I have to say, as you saw, I got given a note here, and we've talked. So I I could go on forever. I just love talking to you. I, I love the way you you just open things up. And if enlightenment has that word "light" in it, and you. You do show us, uh, you know, you show light on all kinds of areas of our thinking and our behaviour. And and I do want to thank and want to tell everybody here that um, Stephen will be uh, spending 20 minutes signing copies of the book. Um, But I know you'll want to join me in thanking him for his fascinating comments.
2: This week's episode starred Stephen Pinker and was presented by Stephen Fry. The producers were John Gordon and Sam Algranti, and the series is made by myself and Esme Bright with help from Nicole Wong. Our editor is John Daugherty. Once again, you can join Stephen in conversation with Richard Dawkins on the 13th of October. To book and find out more, visit our website. Until next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.